Hello and welcome to the next episode of Lost in Criterion. I'm John Patrick Owatari Dorgan, and with me, as always, is a man who was once found on the bottom of the ocean by a passing barrow man. <laughs> I am the Adam Glass, and you'd be surprised how amazing that man looked underwater. I, right? Uh, Everything was floating. <laughs> truly, truly authentic. One of my favorite scenes in this movie. It is it's really so amazing. Good. It's Everything. so funny. I it, it, like not like to, it's. It's a little bit sad that like that's also like the way that's the moment in which the effect looks the worst. But yeah. it is still, it, but it's also really phenomenal, right? Because it does. I mean, things look like they're floating up, right? Like that's impressive. They do. They do. Yeah, legitimately yeah. impressive. It's, right. Uh, they. <laughs> it is a moment where they got too ambitious. But it's still right, right. It's still right. It was not strictly so. speaking necessary to do that that way. <laughs> you, there were a lot of yeah. different ways you could have done it that didn't necessarily require death to to troll the ocean floor. But hey, what are you gonna do? I'll remind you, death's carriage man, not death himself. Here's my problem. I this movie also doesn't seem to know the difference. No, no, this movie does not make a distinction after the first little bit. Pat, before we get into the movie this week, I do want to talk about our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash lostincriterion. Over there for a dollar a month, you can help keep us going and get access to some bonus content. We've got over 70 non-criterion films we've talked about over there. Our supporters vote on what movie we're going to watch and talk about so uh, they can join, join along that way. But also they can suggest lists and sometimes, if it works out timing-wise, which is... Hard to do considering Pat and I are already fourteen hours apart. Uh, yeah, this is the bad. This is the bad season, uh, really. Like when we're fourteen hours apart. Yeah. What with you, you yeah. and your changing uh, time in the middle the, of the year for some fucking unknown reason. The good season, we're thirteen hours apart, so it's it, not that. It, huge it does seem to make a big difference, though. It does. No, no, it does because uh, when we record on your evenings, the difference between having to start by 9 a.m. and having to start by 8 a.m. is insurmountable for anyone in the Eastern time yeah, zone yeah. and impossible for anybody in the, for anyone the Western, I mean, like, in the I U.S. Think, yeah, West, Western The only time way zone. to do the West Coast is for you to get on an airplane, fly to the West Coast, and then I just talk to you both simultaneously. <laughs> yeah. It's the only yeah, way it works. would work better. But yeah, we have, we've had plenty of our uh, supporters on the episodes over the years, and so it's fun to talk to them about a movie they really love. Uh, or love enough to suggest that we put on the list at least. Um, yeah, like I said, it's all non-Criterion films over there, except a couple of times we've picked movies that were later added to the Criterion yeah, collection. Yeah, sometimes so the Criterion again, looks to us and says, oh, wow, we should really put that on there because these guys recorded they're it. They're like, that was smart. Yeah, they're really, they got their head on their yeah. shoulders. A little above that $1 mark, uh, well, we have, a, we have a couple tiers above it. At $5 for folks who can uh, help keep us going, can afford it, and uh, help pay us. Help us pay our uh, server bills. Um, we really appreciate that, so we'd like to thank them on air. And thank you so much to our $5 supporters, Eric Coronado, Chris Otto, Andrew Jarrett, and Stephen Goldmeyer. Yes, thank you so much. Yeah. 
a bit above that, Pat does something pretty dang special, and I do something pretty dang special, and together, it's just super special. Pat makes a piece of art based on one of the movies we watch recently each month, and I get that printed up on a postcard and write a little personalized thank you note, mail it off to our $10 and above supporters each month. We also like to thank them on air, and thank you so much to Nina Bajnak, Tracy McGrath, Adam Speakerman, Jason Westhaver, and Patrick Yako, our current $10 and above supporters. If you'd like to check out those postcards without committing that $10 mark, you can head over to redbubble.com, search for Ross and Criterion there. I think I said Ross. You, you absolutely uh, did. I was not going to say anything because yeah. I didn't want to hurt your feelings. Yeah. Thank you. If you want to check out those postcards without committing to that $10 mark, you can head over to redbubble.com, search for Lost in Criterion there. Our store will pop up, and you can see and purchase most of the past postcards. A few have been taken down over the years because Redbubble refuses to acknowledge that fair use is a thing. But if you really uh, want to see those, if you really want access to those, you can just like message us. We'll, we'll send them to you. Yeah, if you... Yeah. Um, but yeah, they're available as postcards, uh, as greeting cards. This is a good time of year uh, to be sending greeting cards. It's their first, this is our first episode of the new year. Uh, New Year greetings. Uh, oh, yeah, so go yeah. buy late Christmas cards. Buy some early Valentine's yeah. Day cards. Buy some cards off our Redbubble. Mail them out. Uh, Redbubble's turnaround is usually a couple of weeks or more. So more like Valentine's Day cards by the time yeah, things go. Yeah, I think that makes sense. But yeah. uh, that's fine. Groundhog's uh, Day cards. Yeah. Um, President's Day Everybody cards. Everybody wants a Groundhog's Day card. I think. Personally, there's quite a few um, cards that would make excellent President's Day cards. I think the uh, Ashes and Diamonds one would probably. Oh uh, yeah, best that's probably President's pretty appropriate. Yeah, 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 yeah. Unfortunately, the most appropriate uh, one is the one that's been, the one is one is either the two that were taken down. Thank you to everyone who has purchased anything off the Red Bubble over the years. Thank you to everyone who supported us on Patreon over the years as yes, well. Thank you. And thank you for listening. Pat, this week we are watching a very old Swedish film. Uh, yes, yeah, very Over 100 old. years old now. Yeah, I guess that's the true. Phantom that's that is true. It is over 1921. 100 years old. That's unbelievable, Frank. Yeah. Directed by Victor Schostrom. Uh, Schlostrom? Nope. I Nobody knows. know what to do with an SJ. Um... Yeah, <laughs> like like you know, I mean, I spent the entire like because there's a bunch of like, bonus features, and it's like, oh, they're gonna say his name, and like I just listened, and every time I was like, nah, didn't catch it, don't, still don't know. Could you guys slow down like a lot and pronounce pr- pronounce things extremely clearly? Thank you. It definitely starts with some sort of S sound, ends with an M sound. That's about all I can do to help. Uh. I think that's really fun about me is apparently I just hold Sweden as disdain. Yeah, we both do. Uh, because for like for East Asian names, I will make a point of trying to hunt down how to properly pronounce them. Right. <laughs> and then for European names, I'm just like, ah, oh, I know oh it's probably French adjacent or Spanish adjacent. Um, yeah. But like, yeah. no, for the Swedish... Anyway. The real answer is I'm convinced the Swedish don't know how to pronounce Swedish names. I'm con- yeah. I'm convinced the entire thing is entirely amorphous that has no no actual definable characteristics that they just make it up every time. Swedish does seem like a fake, fake right? language. It feels that way. Yeah. Uh 
as I said, this movie is from 1921, The Phantom Carriage. It is a story for New Year's Day. It premiered on New Year's Day, in fact. Apparently uh, took a fuck ton of time to make, too. Like, was really... Right? Yeah, Didn't yeah, it, yeah. It wasn't, in, like, essentially in post-production for, like, two years or something? I feel like that's what they I, said. I believe so. Uh, I mean, yeah. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me. Uh, this is a movie... I, I mean, most of the uh, editing in this movie was in camera, so... Uh, uh, it's not like they need to finish it off post Yeah, but it seems but like it's I remember the them up. saying like that, that it was kind of shocking to people how long it took because I guess it was like it got fi- it got theoretically finished and then just like never came out or whatever. I don't know what the hold up they didn't explain yeah. what the hold up was. It's just like mm, yeah, it didn't come out when everybody thought it should. Yeah, I don't know. Um Yeah. It is uh Ingmar Bergman's favorite movie. Uh, while it was in that production, that long production cycle, Ingmar Bergman was a toddler and a baby. Uh, presumably, he saw it pretty young. I I assume that if a movie comes out in Sweden in 1921, a time when I can't imagine a lot of movies were coming out in Sweden in 1921. Certainly not and, native Swedish films, right? Like, yeah. you know, right? Yeah. And Charlie Chaplin... Declares it the famous best movie Swede. ever. Oh wait, no. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm just playing world's around. most just, famous person. I'm just playing around. In I just, 1921. I think it's just. Honestly, yeah, no. I yeah. just think it's very funny to like. Yeah. That like we we just gotta extend this like thought process into like yeah. a very strange direction. Which like, did you know Charlie Chaplin secretly Swedish? Yeah. Little known Maybe. fact. Um, eventually Swiss. Uh. I believe passport wise. Right. <laughs> but uh anyway. Um yeah. So Bergman saw it very young. It was hi- highly influential. Uh it's the movie that made him want to make movies. Uh and it's It's uh, understandable. Uh, well, so much so that yeah. So much so that not only uh did Schoenstrom uh inspire Bergman that Bergman eventually uses Schoenstrom as an actor in a couple of films. Right. Uh yeah, um, including where we've seen him before as an actor, Wild Strawberries, uh, his final film role where he plays the uh, the older college professor uh, who is on a, a tour of his life, basically, um, in a in a different way than the tour of tour of a life that happens in. This yeah, movie. not quite as um, as um, uh, supernatural. Yeah, supernatural horrifying. Well, maybe like you know, not quite as horrifying either. I suppose. Yeah. 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 More of a melodramatic, uh, right? Look back. This is your life, sort of thing. Still grief filled, right? Seemingly, just not but... guided by the personification of death, uh, which probably right, right, right helps. Arguably, I think any Swede is actually the personification of death. Right, so. just being around a Swedish person is just is just yeah. in and of itself a tour through death. Well, yeah. I, 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 uh, I'm okay the, with saying goodbye to all, all the potential Swedish <laughs> listeners we're ever going to have. <laughs> I think the Swedes will find that funny. This is a technologically fascinating, innovative, amazing film. Uh, and we'll talk more about that later. But first, this movie's plot is incredibly dull. It is <laughs> a ter- like, let's be clear, an amazingly done piece of garbage. Oh yeah, like and what in they're many doing ways, like plot. just very, very boring. 
Um, I mean, it's yeah. fine because because our director does build a lot of tension about like what right, right, will right. happen. Like, you really don't know what's going to actually happen necessarily. There are quite a few surprises yeah. in it for a, a fundamentally very dull movie. Um, you know, it, it it is the. I mean, okay. So like, let's let's take a moment here. Like. So first of all, we're just looking at a, a Victorian morality play, right? Like that's this all we have here. It's it's too late technically. We're outside of the Victorian era time wise, but like, yeah, it's got the aesthetics of the the trappings, the ideas of Victorian sort of moral philosophy, right? That sort of bled into the early twentieth uh, century and and like temperance movements right, and stuff. Right, right. But it is... Yeah, the film is definitely a temperance film. It's a temperance film, but I feel it's not even quite as sophisticated as temperance stuff was in some ways, right? It is very, very base level, right? It's just prudish, almost for prudishness sake in many ways, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, But yeah, like, it's um, it's interesting because... Oh, I'd say... Go ahead. I I I didn't think about this until now, but uh, I'd say this is the most prudish Swedish film we've ever seen. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. Because most of the ones, yeah. like most of the films, Swedish films we have watched, have engaged with the idea of morality and the and the idea of like, uh, sort of philosophy and theology and things like that it has been sort of a, but like never have they had a stick this far shoved up their ass. Yeah, like this movie. This yeah. movie feels like I didn't. You know, I don't know enough about Sweden, right, to like know about Swedish history. But like, this feels like it belongs. This feels like it should be a U.S. film, frankly. Yeah, for how far the sticks yeah. shoved up their assholes. Like, it's. Yeah. It feels like it ought to have been made by a like an American temperance uh, group. It just right. it has that feel like it's got the same yeah. sort of well, level I of mean, just like I don't care about plot. All I care about is showing how bad drinking is. Yeah, ultimately, it, it feels like uh, it feels like Salvation Army propaganda. Yeah, it does. It does <laughs> like, absolutely, and, so. and it's like, which is weird. It's just weird because like, yeah. the like Salva- if you told me the Salvation Army actually funded this, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean. Uh, did they? <laughs> like, do we know for a fact it, it that they did? It wouldn't be the worst. It wouldn't be the worst thing they've ever done with their money. So, um, I mean, frankly, not, considering the results and what it, the impact it had on cinema, it might be the best thing they ever did yeah. with their money. Right, right, right. Ah, uh, the Salvation Army. Um, yeah, it's a bunch of assholes. They've always been bad, top to bottom. They've always been bad. Yeah, always been bad. Uh, so, very good at tricking people into yeah. thinking they're good, but always been bad. Uh, it, I. I feel like when you call the Salvation Army, you always have to ju- uh, bad. When you call the Salvation, I feel you like when you call the Salvation it, right? Army, right? Because you bad, feel like you're doing you something wrong, right? Like it, yeah. Because people, because, it feels like people are going to argue with you. They're going to be like, "What are you talking yeah. about? The Salvation Army's bad." No, it is. They feel like they're so innocuous. You know, they're just uh, they're just a charity organization. But uh, <laughs> I would take any opportunity to condemn the Salvation Army. Uh, modern day Salvation Army. Uh, you'll you'll frequently see in some corners of uh, of the world. Um, they're very much anti-LGBTQ, yes. uh, very much anti-trans, uh, to the point of refusing aid to trans people who are actively at their shelters looking for help. Yeah, I mean, help. just just willing to forsake uh, their theoretical like purpose for existence yeah. for the sake of hate, yeah. hating LGBTQ people. It's kind of amazing, actually, how... Yeah. 
uh, yeah. frequently stories nowadays of them, particularly in the U.S., uh, showing up for disaster relief, uh, functioning with volunteers and donated products uh, that they're distributing, and then charging the government for labor and... <laughs> And product. Yeah, maybe uh, maybe the only and, group that could, that one of the only volunteer groups that can actually make the, the fucking Red Cross look good. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's not great. Uh, but they've always, they've always been bad. The Salvation Army started uh, as a, uh, or at least popularized um, as an alternative means or an alternative to worker solidarity, basically. Right. The Salvation Army would show up at IWW, uh, IWW uh, uh, street meetings and start singing loudly to drown them out. Like, is the they argument was the idea just like you don't need you don't need worker solidarity, you just need God? Is that basically the argument they're trying to make? I mean, I don't know about the Salvation Army particularly, but Moody in Chicago was making that argument, at least subtly. Oh uh, man, I I it, hate anti worker yeah. fucking anti worker Christian groups. So there's the yeah. most fucked up group of people that's ever existed on earth. Yeah, yeah, there were Christian groups in the early 20th century, and and Moody is explicitly that, um, well, implicitly that I suppose he never actually. I don't think Moody would have admitted it, but uh, people who were sort of pushed along by their financial backers to offer a gospel of individual responsi- personal responsibility, uh, which we see in this film, um, that ignores social ills, not you know societal problems, structural issues, uh, in order to undermine organizing efforts. Right. And, and the undermining organizing efforts is an important part of it. A thing that is actively happening. Right. Whether or not they admit that they are trying to make it happen, it is actively happening. And the IWW recognized it. The Wobblies frequently clashed with uh, the Salvation Army. The Wobblies, uh, you know, Joe Hill wrote tons and tons of songs for the Little Red Songbook. Uh, and so many of his songs were parodies of uh, Christian like revival choruses. Because he was actively stealing the music from the uh, right from the Salvation Army, and uh, there's actually there's a really great story here in Columbus uh, that I think around 1910, uh, the uh, the Wobblies in Columbus, and there are only like two of them. Uh, there really there is no there is no Wobbly establishment in Columbus, and there never has been. But there were a couple of Wobblies in Columbus around 1910. And uh, the Salvation Army had a regular thing on a downtown street corner every Sunday preaching. And one one week when they finished, the Wobblies pop up on their soapbox and start preaching to the same crowd. Uh, and it fomented what is described as a small riot in all the material I can find. Uh, and eventually ended with the county commissioner banning uh, the Wobblies from speaking on any street corner in Columbus. Uh, a law I can never find rescinded, so it might still it's be probably true still today. active. I I uh, assume it is still active. I assume that if you were to first join the IWW and then then go try I to talk to somebody corner, with, yeah, I think if somebody with their red card starts trying to preach on uh 
on a street corner here in Columbus, uh, the police will beat you, and then <laughs> whether or not they figure they out, they probably it's don't need the law. any legal They're justification. St- frankly, yeah, I yeah. mean, like, I mean, that's really what it comes down to is that we've we've moved so far beyond the notion that they need any sort of legal yeah. justification to do anything that it doesn't matter. Yeah. I guess th- the other thing with the Salvation Army for me is I I understand the value of a war metaphor when you're talking about uh, fighting spiritual battles. Uh, but the spiritual battles they're fighting are not the right ones, in my opinion, because they're they're fight again they're fighting individualistic uh, redemption. Um, well, I mean, but they've also just essentially taken the metaphor too literally, right? Like it's it's right. the The reality of the matter is, is that like the design of an army and the, this notion is not conducive to like right as a as a Christian pacifist, a Christian sect that borrows the structure. Uh, and iconography of a military just doesn't sit well with me. And as a Christian anarchist, a Christian sect that borrows the hierarchy I, I, to of me, I a think, military, honestly, to is me, even I think worse. that's actually uh, probably the the bad, like the worst part of it. Like the 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 yeah. the, the the war stuff is almost probably. I mean, like is mostly just like meaningless dick waving, basically. Yeah, but yeah, like yeah, yeah. the hierarchy is is a thing that is like. To to my mind, counter, like is essentially yeah, fundamentally anti-Christian, right? You know what I mean? Like, it, yeah. it's fundamentally anti-Christian. Yeah. It's like, oh, what? What do you mean? This is supposed to be a flat hierarchy? Fuck you! <laughs> yeah. Now, now, of course, you know, outside of uh, outside of my particular brand of Christianity, uh, the Anabaptist movement. Uh, hierarchy exists in pretty much. Every I know. Christian I am well aware organization. of that fact. I mean, like, and it makes me mad in all of them. So it's okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, but yeah, but yeah. No, it's it's you know, but. it's just it, they're. I don't know. It's all the whole the whole Salvation Army bit. And the funny thing is, is it's right. like strictly speaking, totally unnecessary to the story. Yeah, like. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. From a, from like, it, they could just as easily have been nuns. They could have just as easily just right. been like a just a general like um kind of like um community service organization, which just have exist and have always existed. Like, right. It doesn't. Right. Ha- it didn't have to be. It like it may, that's what makes it feel even more like a Salvation Army commercial. Is especially they they are yeah. the Salvation Army people in this movie are saints, right? Well, especially the one is right. Like, yeah. The other, yeah, the other person yeah. is essentially not the thing, relevant. The other people aren't, but like, eat it is. There, there is a subtle thing that makes it maybe important that it's the Salvation Army, and it says the Salvation Army is a growing movement, sort of a new religion within Sweden at the time. Uh, and that's that uh, when David comes to the Salvation Army depot for the first time on the first New Year's Eve, mm. well, not even the first New Year's Eve narratively, ultimately, but... Uh, a year prior to our narrative. Um, it is also the first day of service of that Salvation Army Right, right. But like... Station. But seemingly the thing that compels Edith to do it is not the fact that it, he's... I mean, she does bring up he's our first visitor, like... But like, one gets yeah. the impression that Edith is just a saintly figure. That Edith probably right, has right, treated right. every person who's walked through the door that way. Yes, absolutely. that's just the impression absolutely. you get, right? Like you don't yeah. get any evidence that any regard that Edith is not kind of a perfect so, person. Beyond beyond all the Salvation Army stuff, uh, 
the plot of this movie is one of those things where, and this happens. You know, we've watched we've watched anti drinking films before. Right, yeah, uh, we've watched anti drinking. We've had, we've had watched what yeah. amount of borderline anti loitering films. But yeah, the anti drinking has yeah. been has been a thing, a running. Uh, this, yeah, it's it's one where this is a plot where David needs to be redeemed from the drink, uh, instead of whatever societal issues right. drove him to the so drink. which brings us to uh, oh sorry and, go ahead sorry yeah and with yeah within the plot he sort of just falls in with the wrong crowd is why well, he it's, it's kind of even worse like, than that he's seduced by the drink like it, it's classic yeah, like yeah. fucking like temperance movement bullshit it's like well we've identified what's ruining all the men in our community it's the it's the it's the drink it's like can we take are we able to take this a step further? Why are they sort of self-medicating? No, no, we're not going to do it. No, we're no, just going to stick with absolutely it's not. The drink. Why would we it's do the that? Drink. So if we cut the off drink. their access to the drink, they'll all become perfect people overnight. Right. No problems. Problems. They'll solved. finally shave. They'll stop beating their wives. Which is what Edith believes, uh, and it's what the movie tells us, right? Like in right. Ultimately, right, right. that's the answer. That's that. He just has to stop drinking, and it'll be fine. Everything will be great. Yeah. He won't try to give his kids um, tuberculosis anymore. Yeah. What uh, What is absolutely insane to me about this story is that the novel this is based off of, the 1912 novel, uh, in Swedish, Korkelen, which means uh, uh, carriage man, basically. Um, in English, uh, called Thy Soul Shall Bear Witness, uh, which is also the British title of the film when it oh, comes interesting. out. Oh, uh, interesting. But it seems that uh, Selma Langerloff's original novel was uh, commissioned by uh, some sort of Swedish association, not as a means of temperance, but as an anti-tuberculosis PSA. <laughs> Uh, what? Uh, that's it's wild. I don't. Yeah, it still follows the same. Like this is a very accurate adaptation, from what I can tell, plot-wise of the book, uh, with a couple of exceptions. Um, one, the way David dies, he's uh, he's accidentally punched in the gut, uh, which triggers a hemorrhage, which is a complication of tuberculosis, right? As opposed to in the film, he's hit over the head with a bottle. Which obviously plays into the right. The well, it, is, it, it's directly aligning the the means of death yeah. to like the, the 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 thing we're talking about, right? Like he's killed by the by alcohol, literally, or he's killed yeah. by tuberculosis, literally, basically. Yeah. So, um, yeah. The other thing I I can't find if if it exists in the novel or not, because I'm only reading a plot synopsis of the novel, right? Right. Um, I'm not going to read. Yeah, we didn't thing. read the whole novel. That's not sorry. Sorry. Whoever <laughs> made that, that one, uh, that one, uh, yeah. uh, uh, Apple podcast review, like two, 10 years ago. I'm still not going to do it. <laughs> why, why didn't you, why didn't why you read didn't the you novel? Read it's like, prime. we do one a week. Like, uh, uh, yeah, a full-time job. I can't read a novel in a week. Not, I mean, not I could, when we have not so if I have other jobs. If I do have a job, yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> we need more Patreon supporters yeah, before okay. that becomes a thing. Yeah, we get we get uh, so roughly a hundred thousand dollars a year in Patreon. I will quit my job and read every novel this is associated with. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Um I don't know from the plot synopsis whether or not David is as openly a dick as he is. Yeah, the, I don't think it's the, possible, right? Uh, like I don't movie. think that's possible. So uh so part of the dangers of tuberculosis as presented in the book is that you could get it from touching an infected person's clothing that hasn't been sanitized, which is how Adith catches it right. in uh in you the could book cough or on in the movie. She, yeah. Like, uh you could not cover your mouth when you're right. coughing in public, which seems to be a thing David does in the book, but in the movie but he's is doing it on he per- particularly right. but, does. But, so, but here's the thing, yeah. in the movie though. He's a, he does it because he's an asshole. He's an asshole because he drinks. Right. The book must theoretically justify that. The alternative is that, like, while the movie may be nominally accurate to the book, it may have severely changed the sort of um, the uh, the sort of um, the like the sort of like underlying currents of the behavior. You know what I mean? Because there's a version yeah. of this movie. Where all the things he does are because he is careless rather than 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 markedly evil, you know what I mean? Right. Does that does right. that make sense? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like he and and where he still needs to be redeemed by that carelessness, right? Right. Or from that carelessness, where where George can still show up and show him all the ways he has inadvertently harmed other people, in. Uh, which, which, as far as David's concerned, is still true in the book or in the movie because he's been drunk when he's done all this harm. Right. He doesn't know that he's harmed all these people, uh, but he's just actively a jerk. <laughs> like when he destroys, destroy, redestroys the coat and says, "Oh, I just liked it better this way." Calls her in to make him her to make her watch him destroy all the things she did to fix right. his coat. Uh, just openly a jerk for no reason. I mean, it seems like the book plot synopsis says that he was an evil drunk. So, like, one has to wonder. Yeah, maybe. I guess it's also possible that the novel is trying to, like, conflate the two in the sense that, like, you know, like, kind of this idea that, like, he's... You know what I mean? Like, like drinking is seen is, is often understood by a lot of people as being a kind of evil thing to do. So you kind of like make the person who's got tuberculosis also just generally evil, like in a way yeah. that like there is because otherwise you do have to make him just a careless guy, right? Like that's all you right. would have to. That's what you would do, right? There is a line on the Wikipedia page, and the Wikipedia page is wholly unsighted. Right, so it's, it's a bit know, rough. It's all, yeah. yeah. Um, but there's a line on the Wikipedia page in the background of her writing the movie that, uh, or writing the book, that the characters take on mythic qualities and David is literally a personification of evil. Uh, so maybe he is that bad in the book too. Yeah. Uh, in any case. Well, yeah, the Wikipedia page is almost, uh, for the book is literally almost entirely unsighted. It has two, yeah. one, one citation. I'm sure one guy wrote it too, which is weird actually, because Langerlof is incredibly famous uh, within Sweden uh, and had already won a Nobel Prize by the time this book came out. So, um, you'd think that there would be more Langerlof. Well, it's just it's a it's a matter of it's a matter of like effort, right? Because the Swedish one has 21 references. 
Right. Where like oh, I see. you could I if see. you spoke Swedish and had and English and had the time and, and, and desire, the the English one could also have twenty one references. That's you know what I mean? Like it just does um, it because you're and nobody wants to bother. Another thing that I sort of find interesting, I guess I guess flu's not long term enough. TB is something that people have for years and years. I mean, right? you have TB for the rest of your um, life, don't you? I mean, like theoretically speaking, yeah. you never you never right. not have it after that. You're just not. Yeah. It's, it's not expressed anymore. Yeah, I was just thinking, uh, the the book comes out in 1912. Um, and then the movie comes out in 1920. Uh, it would make sense, given that so much of... Uh, so much of David being a jerk is actively coughing on people. Uh, it would make sense that if... They learned one of the lessons from the nineteen uh, the 1910s flu epidemic of masking as a way of not spreading well, communicable see, di- like, disease. That's what's kind of weird. So I have to... Oh, go ahead. Sorry. The fact that they don't add that into the narrative just makes me have to assume that uh, Schlostrom and Lagerlof were both anti-maskers. My question um, is how I I w- it would be interesting to know how hard Sweden was hit by the 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 Spanish right flu. right I don't actually know that like yeah I, it seems like that learning that lesson was very on a case by case basis depends on the country and how bad it got there right and then also how much how how wackadoo the people who live there are <laughs> because there's lots of countries that learned it pretty well and then a lot of countries it seems to have that seem to have forgotten almost instantly um, so. I don't know. It it, yeah. is, it is weird uh, that it's not. It is also. It is kind of weird that it's not brought up, right? Like, I guess yeah. it's partially quick, because quick like, Google says. Go okay, ahead. Yeah. Quick Google says Spanish flu did not reach Sweden until June 1918, which might be while this movie was still in production. Um, ultimately, a third of the population became infected, and uh, seven out of every 1,000 people died. Damn. Um, so it still got hit. Yeah, I mean, I Almost guess the as bad as the thing about else, it seems like so the cla- the thing about flu versus TB, as you already brought up, is it's is yeah. flu is deadly but fleeting, whereas TB is yeah. both deadly and permanent, right? And it tends to garner right. more tended to prior to it sort of as, you know being wiped out for the most part. Prior, uh, it garner more like public authority attention right because you've debilitated somebody permanently rather than just knocked them off completely which is right, like right you know what i mean like it, it it's um you know what i mean it's that it's that like <laughs> the government would rather you be dead than 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 in some way uh like disabled right like basically um right b- better yeah. than yeah, you know a dead also... worker than a useless one basically um so right uh, um, we've also spent the last couple of weeks talking about Jean Vigo, who died of tuberculosis, right. um, that he contacted sometime around, I feel like 1920 was, was the day yeah, of I think that. Maybe when he was I can't remember. Yeah, he, was, he, he had it for like six to eight years or something like that. It was it was a pretty long yeah, time. Yeah, something like that. It's not like it, so, yeah. you know, it goes into recession, but it's not like it goes away, um, you know. Right, right. And I'm sure that drinking can exacerbate. Oh, I'm sure it, it makes it worse. Uh, I, I, of course. Like, I'm also you know. given given that at least colloquially, TB is also 
uh, exasperated by cold weather. I imagine living with TB in Sweden is not great. Uh, it's just it's just a nightmare period, right? So, um, yeah, yeah. I don't uh, know. So like, yeah. So this thing is a um. So you one of the things you brought up before though was the 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 um. Well, way back earlier, you brought up the fact that, like, you know, you said, like, the timeline, you know, and you're like, and you mentioned the fact that, like, well, actually, it's a year before. And and so we get into the thing. One of the sort of hallmarks yes. of this movie is a is a air quotes convoluted timeline. Right. Um, yeah, it seems like it seems like a lot of people find it more convoluted than it, it actually is. But, yeah, I mean, it's it seems like it's um, the. um it's got to be the fact that there's so we have what four four time flat four flashbacks essentially or four time jumps or, essentially yeah or I don't even know yeah. what you go because one of them's not really a time jump one of them's just a sort of like spatial displacement as flashback there kind is that of. as well actually yeah. flash forward yes. um f- sort of flash sideways yeah basically though right? I guess flash forward because yeah the final the final sequence. With uh, with his wife committing suicide has to be happening concurrently to uh, his death and Adit's death. Right, it does. Presumably, so, the 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 ghost of Christmas now or of New Year's now, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, can time travel too and can make and can yeah. like revive you from death prior to the events that take place concurrent with your death. I guess. Yeah. Um. So yeah, the first flashback is David telling the story of George telling the A story, story of, 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 of the only the most confusing part is that the first flashback we get is nested. Is a, is a double, yeah. So, it's a it's a it's a it's, yeah. a it's a double flashback. George tells the story of a person of a person who's visited by death's right. carriage driver. And that and then he he finishes that story with oh and and it turns out George also died on New Year's Eve not ominous uh, at all Under, uh, yeah. in no way is this is this uh, ev- uh, foreshadowing in any capacity yeah yeah um, and then the rest of them we, are not hard to sort so out we, they're just not hard to sort out right yeah we flash back to a year prior which is uh, already him in already David in his downfall uh, we flash back to. Uh, unknowable times before that uh, to to establish how he came to fall, right? Well, it seems like that. It, it seems yeah. like that might have just been almost exactly a year before that. Yeah, it was I, just. I, before I think. I that feel like happened. I. I'm not sure but, they say specifically, but it feels like it's it's sort of written that way. He goes to jail. He has the idyllic picnic with his brother and his family uh, in the. In the wild strawberry field, where where they're seduced um, by by the drink, yeah, uh, that obviously happened at some point long enough ago that he was able to be seduced by the drink, be arrested for whatever he did while drunk, go to jail, get out of jail. Well, specifically, he uh, goes to jail because his brother or brother-in-law, I forget which one it is. His brother murdered somebody had, yes. while drunk. While drunk. And yeah. they decide that because he seduced his brother to the drink, or brother-in-law, again, yes, I forgot. He, he is really the one culpable and should the, go to jail. The felony murder rule uh, back when it <laughs> applied to drunkenness. Um, uh, yeah. 
So, um, so he gets out of prison and discovers his wife has left him. Uh, and then he moves to a new city. Well, and specifically vows revenge and then moves to a new city. Yes, vows. Yes. He doesn't want to find her because he city. loves her and he wants He's to like her. find her and be with her and like he wants to hunt her down to ruin her life for. Yes. Truly to make her feel the way man. he feels. Yeah. yeah, great guy. Um and then that all of that happens prior to the New Year's Eve that he arrives at the Salvation Army, but possibly within that year prior. And obviously George who is a friend of David's, his death had to have been on the New Year's Eve that David arrives at the Salvation Army Depot. Yeah, I mean, because I think I think there's a sort of me. there's supposed to be yeah. a sort of symmetry to the fact that like, yeah, this the, the 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 like sort of like this alcohol is just killing people like right. You know, the, you know, the cosmology of this film. Yeah, the cosmology of this film says that you only serve as the carriage rider for the year you died. Right. Or for the year after you died. So uh George had to have died that year. Yeah, right? we, we know his the New time Year's of day. his death. It's just it's just yeah. um very um I don't know, it seems you know, because it's the the New Year's Eve, it's the last person to die on New Year's Eve, which is always going to be an evil person. It, it's got a very like Yeah. It's very it's kinda has a bit of a, a sort of a rhythmic feel to it, right? It seems like maybe they're right. always gonna be connected to each other or something. Um but yeah, like, um, so like, where we get this idea that this is a convoluted uh, set of time jumps comes from uh, one of the, you know, documentary bits yeah. that are connected to this, uh, with uh, wh- um, what Kristen Thompson, right? Um, yeah, Kristen Thompson, who is a PhD in film history, right? Or am I getting that wrong? Yeah, I mean, she's she's a film theorist. She she uh, writes research books. She's done. Uh, Seemingly, a lot of interesting stuff. So she she argues that this the this this people find this work um, somewhat. Oh, she works at the university. Wait, Does she work at the university. You're doing of what I did now? this morning. Maybe. I don't know. I can't tell. It's on the University of Kentucky's like research page but i don't know that that means she's where it just seems like maybe my search decided i like kentucky so <laughs> we'll yeah. just give you a hit she, from kentucky she's also she also seems to be maybe the corner the coiner of the phrase or at least one of the proponents of the phrase uh quality television um as a uh critical description of what we might call prestige television mm-hmm. sort of the or uh, interesting uh narrative artistic uh things like the sopranos or the wire right um though though she uses it a little bit more broadly and talks about buffy and sex in the city and 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 other things and six feet under too um but anyway uh yeah she's got it's it's only on the on the channel because it's originally something that was produced for filmstruck it's not uh it's from 2017 and it's not actually on any of the discs, but it was a bonus feature we ended up watching because it was on the Criterion Channel right. as part of part of the uh, the Phantom Carriage stuff. But yeah, she talks about how uh, you know, her her whole bit is talking about the flashback structure of the story, 
Um, and she talks about it being confusing and she quotes someone, an earlier critic, talking about it being confusing. Uh, but she also points out, and I think this is important to remember, uh, she didn't see the version of the movie we see. Right. She saw she, a, a hacked apart yeah. version. That, that yeah. Nobody, which the is version, what everybody saw. At least yeah. in the version we're The version we're seeing from the Criterion Collection was a Swedish Film Institute uh, restoration in 1975, where they found a black and white copy with Swedish intertitles and a colorized copy, well, colorized to the extent that our our version is right. colorized, which is the where the, which is important. The the, the colorization yeah. is important because, in this film. Yeah, the the color tint one makes the uh, ghostly stuff feel all the more ethereal because it's blue, right? Uh, but also establishes the timelines better because every time every timeline has its own each. color. Yeah. Um, yeah, and presumably. She didn't have. Not only was hers hacked right. apart, she would not have. She seen would have that also version. not had the tinting, as far as we know. Yeah, right. She she would have seen probably the original American release, which was edited by distributors to be a chronological telling. <laughs> I think she points out is probably the, the worst way to tell this story. Absolutely, yes. She she spends some time explaining that editing this to be chronological would be terrible. Would make it very even it more kind of boring. Story structure. Yeah. Like, because th- all the yeah. suspense in this film, all the interest and intrigue you get from this film is not based on the story. It's based on the order in which the story is revealed to you. Because right. you don't know Absolutely. what's going to happen. Uh, even though things happen in the past, they are unclear to you as the audience, right? Including, but not limited to, like, the only one you would get as an audience member, not wa- if you were watching it in chronological order, would be the reveal that he can be brought back to life at the end. The the Dickensian, right, right, right. oh, the 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 the, yes. the the ghost did it all in one night, sort of thing. Uh, it is the ghost did it all in one night sort of thing. But even even Dickens was not so out there for for all of Dickens' <laughs> spiritualism. Uh, none of none of his characters were actually just resurrected. Right, right. The yeah, Scrooge doesn't die and then travel back in time to be brought back to life. <laughs> this is true. Um yeah. because honestly, it's not a great storytelling device, right? Like it kind of it's surprising to us in the audience partially because it's stupid. Like, you know what I mean? You as the audience member have decided this person is dead. We've made that very clear. Them coming back to life is a thing that people don't do. Right? Um, yeah. I mean, I guess you could argue that maybe he's just knocked out and not actually dead at all. I guess I suppose. could be the argument. I, I don't know. I mean, that would... But he... But... Yeah, I don't know. I don't, that I don't know. That undermines the... Uh, occult spirituality right which uh, ruins everything else right of the story right in a way that we don't want to that's a thread we don't want to start to pull right so basically death brings him back to life because a he's a he's a uh but then how does he dream things that are actually happening concurrently to him being knocked out right well that's uh, where your occult it, spiritualism it stuff just, comes in still. it doesn't answer any questions no it doesn't it help it doesn't make the movie better so. um it, it, it the point is is like Death can bring back anybody who becomes who repents after death, which presumably would mean like right. everybody would come back. Yeah, I that guess. is uh, that is a much more. I feel like it's more Egyptian. 
uh, cosmology wise than, than it's, it's uh, very you know, weird. It's, listen, it's, bodily bodily resurrection is definitely a thing that exists in Christianity. Uh, it's a it's a a major tenet of the religion. But I don't think it's supposed uh, to happen but, actively uh, within minutes of you dying because you <laughs> repented right. after death to the right, right. to death's coachman. Like. It's, that's generally not how it works within Christianity. It's for a sure. weird yes. idea to th- to when you consider that like, does everybody get this treatment? Like, is this is this as everybody? And then like, we're all just failing the test all the time, or we didn't repent hard yeah. enough at the end. I don't. But yeah, that's another interesting aspect about this whole storyline is that as much as it feels like Salvation Army propaganda, because the Salvation Army is presented as uh, it infinitely. Uh, uh, caring and infinitely uh, compassionate organization. Um, the cosmology of this movie is probably at odds with Salvation Army theology. Pretty, uh, yeah, pretty probably. Explicitly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I uh, presumably this movie is at odds. With, like, like a lot of it. So apparently, this is a myth from or a sort of like folk tale from Brittany. I yeah, guess. yeah. It's, it's not, not even from Swedish. Sweden, which is weird. Yeah. But yeah. I guess the idea is that, like, um, like a lot of folk lore, like folk tale sort of things, it's going to be in direct odds with, um, with Christianity, right? Because that shit never right, melts right. properly, right? It's it, it always predates Christianity's introduction to the place, and it always gets kind of meshed in, but never really satisfactorily, right? Like it's the sort of thing that like mothers tell their children or something, but then like. They can't. You couldn't actually talk to the priest about in church because he would get mad at you. <laughs> like you know what I mean. Like it's <laughs> like you, you know what I'm saying. There's like a whole. There's a whole array of folk concepts, yeah. ideas, wisdoms, and stuff that exist in this sort of li- like weird space where it's like, well, we've kind of integrated them as best as we can into Christianity, like on a on a family by family, case by case, like folk basis. Right. But right, if you were right. to actually say it to a priest there's a decent chance you would like get whipped or something. You know what I mean? Like depending on the priest in the era. Certainly. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, I mean like, but uh, like in generally they're going to look at you disapprovingly because that's not good theology. You're not, you're not talking about Christianity yeah. anymore. You're talking about old pagan shit that just sort of found its way that nobody really wants to let go of. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's silly. Um, yeah. So, so plot wise, this is all very silly. Um, so and go, go unfortunately, ahead. it is it is more about uh, the dangers of alcohol than uh, any of the societal problems that that well, cause okay, someone so to drink. Speaking of which, okay, so and this is a thing that you and I kind of chit chatted before this about that we wanted to talk about is the fact that one of the other things that Kristen Kristen Thompson says. Which I don't, I don't think we mm-hmm. can lambast her for. I don't think she's trying to really like argue a point definitively or anything like that. Is that like this is kind of an unprecedented, precedent? I can't say that word. Adam, you say it. Unprecedented. Unprecedented. Thank you. It's yeah, I there want. There's, I'm making too many D sounds. Um, sort of storytelling mechanism. And while I would say yeah. that that might at this time maybe be true for film, I don't really know i mean almost certainly something that's never been in film before right because it's early enough and she's like well most film at this time flashbacks are just direct memories of the of the character or whatever it kind of makes sense right it's very early days um but like 
she says that, and but she implies that it's like for storytelling in general, and like, yeah, my immediate reaction to it is like, you do know this is just basically the plot of a Christmas Carol, right? Like, you're right, aware right, that right, we, yeah. we just it's just a Christmas Carol, but at New Year's instead of Christmas, and there's no ghost of future because it's just the ghost of present, and then like it just happens. Yeah. I I don't know. It's it's very. The story feels very Dickensian. It very much feels like, hey, did this author just read A Christmas Carol and then, like, make that again? Right. I don't know. The The idea of a Nobel Prize winning author being contracted to write a tuberculosis PSA and just being like, okay, but it's going to be Dickens. Like, That's I, don't got, I don't have That's a lot of time for this. <laughs> I've, I've got other stuff to do. Yeah. I'm just going to make it a – like, who cares? It's It's – this is for the Swedish government or whatever. I'm just gonna crank this shit out. Like it's just gonna it's just gonna be a Christmas Carol, okay? Like that's what we're gonna do. But like we're gonna cut out all the social commentary because like we don't have time for that. This is just about TV. Yeah. Um, because it's worth noting our main character. I, I just, okay, go ahead. Sorry. I've just looked up flashback as a narrative structure on Wikipedia. It's ancient, and, man. Uh, it's it's for, a billion years for old. literature. The suggestion, yeah, the suggestion of an early example is. Uh, the Ramayana, which is like eighth century BC. That's what I'm saying. So, it's like um, you can't, you cannot define flashback as a narrative structure having an origin place because presumably, yeah, um, uh, oral storytelling had flashbacks in it, and we just, so therefore right. it, it Almost is certainly. When, yes. when did humans start talking to each other? Well, that's probably around the time the flashback was invented. So. Presumably, much like other narrative structures that they they coincide with it, like as soon as they started being able to like communicate with each other, that's around the time the thing was invented. At some point, yeah. somebody's mind was fucking blown, right? Uh, At- like about like somewhere somewhere like a hundred thousand years ago, somebody's mind fucking exploded when somebody introduced the flashback, and like the, the whole first- village lost their goddamn minds, right? The very first time someone was telling a story and said, oh, wait, you need to know this detail first. <laughs> right, right, right. Really, uh, really, in many ways, in oral storytelling, a sign of bad storytelling, but it's fine. Yeah, but still. I f- oh, I forgot <laughs> to tell you, because anytime you're like, anytime you're a dungeon master or something and D&D does that, you that, that's not a good thing. Yeah. That's a bad thing. It's always bad. But yeah, yeah. I probably uh, should have told yeah, you this Thompson- earlier, but there's a dragon in there. Thompson's presentation is a very screenwriting 101. And yeah. I, I don't know. It, it seems like it was produced for Filmstruck, uh, which is, a, you know, that was what, a collaboration between Turner Classic Movies and, yeah. and Criterion? I wonder so, if Turner Classic Movies maybe was showing those things on TV too as interstitials or something between during yeah, movie, maybe like Maybe. You know what I mean? Like I could see a world because my my yeah. my get what I gathered from Filmstruck when it still existed was that there was a lot of it was a very, that was a very interbred relationship in that way. Like it, like things that were on Filmstruck were things that were on TCM and and vice versa a little yeah. bit. Maybe that's my remember, my guess. But, but in any case, yeah. In any case, uh, yeah. When she starts talking about that, uh. And and seemingly to imply that that narrative flashback is a more modern invention. It was a little silly, but um, but I think to her to her broader point of what she was doing, 
it made sense within the context of of the essay. Yeah, I don't. I like I said, I don't think she was trying to make a like blanket definitive point. I think she's trying to make right. like it's a very short interview. I think it's like eight minutes long or something like that. Maybe even it might even be shorter than that. Um, yeah, and it, and it's mostly I think arguing that like I think the goal is to talk about how like this is one of our early uses seeing visions of like really creative flashback used in film. Like that's going to have a, a an impact on film going forward, right? Um, but like, it does sort of get she ends up accident maybe accidentally even sort of broadly applying it to all to all storytelling. Um, right. Speaking of which, though, we we kind of if we go back to the idea that this is very Dickensian, right? This is very this is very much a Christmas Carol. Um, yeah. We we end up with an interesting thing there though because I mentioned it before, but like. It's a Christmas Carol stripped of all discussion of of actual societal issues. Oh right? yeah, yeah, like yeah. It's, yeah. it's completely no, no, devoid of that. He's he is bad because of alcohol. He's not bad because like right. society has put him in a position. He's not bad because of like the like the, the structures of society. He's just bad because he's he's a failed person. Right. If that line about the book is true, that David is meant to be a personification of evil, then he's not a Scrooge. No, Scrooge no, Scrooge is very specifically not that, right? Like we are made, right. we are made over the course of the movie to both recognize that Scrooge as a as a person in society is 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 bad, is is doing bad in right. society, but that Scrooge is not it is not an individualistic problem that has created Scrooge. That like right. Scrooge can choose individualistically to try to fight against it, which he does choose. Of course, we yeah. all know in our heads when we're when we're reading slash watching it that Scrooge's <laughs> choices have only one net result for Scrooge in the end. Scrooge is going to bankrupt himself. Scrooge will, right. which is good. Which that is not, it's not him, bad. So. It, 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 what, what I mean is that like we <laughs> know that that Scrooge himself cannot physically personally fix society. Right. We know that is true, yeah. and Dickens doesn't try to tell us that Scrooge does. Right, like he. He argues that Scrooge has a moral obligation to try to do that anyway, and in that way expand that out. That if you know we all have a moral obligation to try to do that, which at, at that point would become a societal change rather than a individualistic change. Right. If every single human being actively attempted to fix society, now you're no longer doing individualistic change. You're now doing structural change. Right. Like you. But right, like right, the problem right. is, the Scrooge. Yeah. We know and that Scrooge is the only one, and so Scrooge himself has redeemed himself, but is going to fail fixing society. Right? He can make some people's right. lives better until right. he makes his life, until he becomes destitute. Right? Which, right. Basically, the goal is maybe <laughs> yeah. he'll die before that. <laughs> like maybe he'll, maybe yeah. he won't die Whereas, before he like can't feed himself anymore. Yeah. Whereas this movie isn't interested in those societal problems. No, and that's really, you know, neither is this, neither is the Salvation Army, uh, which is where theologically I really have a problem with what they're doing, particularly against the IWW, is that the, the stuff that uh, I latch onto in Christianity that gets condemned is that societal greed uh, and that, uh, that accumulation of power and wealth, uh, well, you which can, is condemned you... frequently. In, in Christian scripture, uh, well, you here, get what you get the same a, thing. There's that even it, opportunity for it. Here. Oh yeah, absolutely. Sorry, like, Please. well, no. I mean, you could engage with the question of like, what makes David start sort of self medicating? What makes him? Why is David so angry? Right. Because David is 
extremely angry. Is an extremely angry person. And like digging into those questions is worthwhile, right? And it, the, the movie has right. no interest in him. And seemingly he has no nothing that compels him to be angry except for alcohol, right? He's right. at the very end of the movie, he swears off alcohol and we're presented with a world where now he's a good person again. Yeah. Theoretically. You could you could at least use this narrative to uh advocate prison reform. David obviously catches tuberculosis in prison. He doesn't have it before he goes to prison. David's brother, one of the things that David does to his brother, as far as uh, George is concerned, is that he caused his brother to be in prison and therefore caused his brother to catch TB in prison. Prison is where you catch tuberculosis. Right, it's where you... That means drink isn't the problem. Prison is the problem. Well, certainly as far as as the original (laughs) book is concerned, right? Uh, yeah. Well, but yeah. like we're we're in a weird position here because we can't ever go beyond that surface level, right? Because as soon as you go beyond the surface level, you when you start talking about prison reform or you know <laughs> ab- abolishment, yeah. then you're gonna have to ask yourself. Yeah. You're gonna have to eventually ask the hard question, which is why is this like this? And the answer right. is the answer you're not allowed to get, which is capitalism. <laughs> right. Right. Like why is it like this? Yeah. The answer is capitalism. I mean. You could argue before, prior to, you know, we're not that far off of it not being capitalism, but it just being, uh, you know, class struggle. But, like, it's still the same answer, yeah. basically, right? Like, you know. Right, 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 right. Um, you know, yeah. In, in the end, like, David's life is bad, presumably. we can, You and I can extrapolate now, but we're not given enough data to really say definitively it's, it's capitalism. We know it is, but, like, because David right, is en- right. enigmatic. He exists wholly untethered from the real world because he's just a drunk who has no, we don't, you know what I mean? Like we don't get any justification. We don't get any explanations for why he does anything. Right. Other than, do we even know prior to drinking? Do we even know that he has a job? No, we don't know anything about him except for his life was perfect before that. And then it became bad when he started drinking. Like, yeah. and this idea, like, it's just such a fucked idea that, like, oh, yeah, like, this this idea that, like, it's such a, like, backwards fucked idea to be like, yeah, I mean, like, he took to drink and that ruined his life. It's like, do you think maybe David was dealing with something or no, it's just he just he had that first sip and it was just all over. Like, obviously, there's the, the genetic components of alcoholism and stuff like that. We're not we can't downplay right. that stuff. But, like, just the idea, it's just such a fucked idea that, like, well, the only answer to this problem is just to make alcohol illegal, which is, uh, you know, ultimately the goal there, right? And it works out great. Right, right, right. Turns right. out fantastically. Nothing bad happens because of that. No issues. Um, oh, did, 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 did Sweden ever have a successful temperance movement? Did they ever outlaw alcohol? I doubt it. A few places did, though. The U.S. wasn't the only one. We're going to now do the most niche um, Google search ever. Uh, <laughs> like, just Sweden's <laughs> Sweden had a prohibition referendum uh, that failed with fifty-one percent of the votes against. Oh boy! So they so, very nearly did, huh? Yeah, I mean, it's it's just interesting to think about because, like, this is very much in, in the end what the movie have is the movie we got, the story we got was that right? It was. It's classic sort of temperance movement era propaganda film style stuff. 
that that sort of steals Victorian era sensibilities. Well, stepping away from plot for okay, uh, sure, for sure. now. I mean, you don't want me to complain uh, about I it anymore. We've, we've we've talked it out. Um, plot plot of this movie not great. The structure of the storytelling with the nested flashbacks, I I think is is really fun. Uh, it, it is. Works. It is. Uh, and just, it's also the only thing that makes and, the movie interesting, you know, right? It, it's functionally necessary right, for the right. movie to be interesting. <laughs> well, well, it's not the only thing that makes the movie interesting because what really makes the well, movie I mean, interesting I mean, is sorry, what I the want plot. To no, it's what gives the plot any yeah. engagement. Sorry, that's what I meant. Right, right, right. Yeah, what makes this movie interesting is the uh, technology, technological achievements of the special effects in this movie, which are phenomenal. <laughs> and also, uh, it's funny to call them technological achievements. They are. I'm. Not arguing that they're not technological yeah. achievements, but they mostly involved a man making very careful notes about how fast he cranked film, and then doing that exactly yeah. right again. It, well, that's at least half the, of the ta- of the of the work there. Yeah, the idea that they're doing quadruple exposures on hand cranked cameras—that's fucking insane, is, man. That is nuts. is insane. Like they, yeah. there are other movies yeah. that predate this that have ghostly effects generated by um by right. double exposure like yep. still yeah. photography's had it since almost the beginning um and and film it's not it's not it's not i don't want to say it's not new because like film's also new at this point this film has not been around for very long at this point but there are there's evidence of i've seen shorts that that inclo- included ghostly figures that predate this that being yeah. said I don't know if any of them involved quadruple exposure uh and this extent right like this is an extremely extensive use of this it's the entire film off and on like it, it's it's probably what like I, how many minutes of the film would you say include a ghostly apparition in it probably roughly half oh, right? it's at least half it's at least half if the movie's more. fucking yeah. what an hour and 45 minutes long there's probably like fully like almost an hour of ghostly apparitions in this film. That's insane. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the cinematographer for this movie, uh, is a guy named, uh, Julius Janssen. And, uh, Janssen had experimented with double exposure before. Uh, he'd done it in at least one movie prior, um, for a director named, uh, Stillman. There's a bonus feature that's just behind the scenes stuff of Victor uh, Victor Strodstrom and some other people uh, observing the building of the movie studio yes, where this yeah. film was shot. Uh, and one of the other guys with him is Mort Stiller. Okay. Um, another, another Swedish director. So Johnson had worked with Stiller on a film prior to this. Um, I believe Sir Arne's Treasure was the name of it. That... Uh, that he experimented with double exposure in as well. And he'd done some lab work. Uh, the treasure, <laughs> Sir Arne's treasure, by the way, also based on a novel by Selma Lagerlof. The only uh, writer in Sweden was. at the time, just the yeah. singular writer yeah. in the whole fucking country. <laughs> right. Uh, there can be only, yeah, it's, it's a Highlander situation. rule. Uh, somebody had to cut yeah. their head off later. And then that's how we got the new yeah. Swedish writer. So, uh, so Jansen, obviously, working closely with Sojum because they've got, you know, it's not just about uh, the photo exposure. It's also or the film exposure. Uh, you know, you've got 
such intricate staging. You've got to. Right, I mean, know, Edith has to like look at the ghost in the eyes. Like right. it's that's fucking yeah. like insane, and, and successfully does so. Yeah, yeah, and, no, it's uh, very David, good. It, it works. It's yeah. unbelievable. David is lying in the exact same position uh, when he dies as when he stands up from his own body. Right. Yeah. I, uh, well, and, and the in the and cart just, bearing barring a few slightly wonky shots because again, it's all hand cranked and everything yeah the cart moves through the scenery and the world like successfully looks right authentically the, like it's there the idea that they even thought about and realized and successively did uh thinking well sometimes the ghosts have to be in front of background stuff but other times they have to be behind foreground stuff and making this three dimensionality to the film, right? Which is presumably why it's behind. quadruple exposed, right? Because you have to then put things yeah. back in front, right? Because you only right, get right, you've right. only got additive processes. You have no subtractive ability. Right. So the only way to yeah. put a thing in front of them is then to shoot that thing there on top yeah. of the things you already shot, which is yeah. The idea that they're doing ugh. this all in camera. Oh my god! And and and, no. and hand cranked. Which means yeah. a person has to crank it at the same speed, at the same from speed. point Which, from the same know, point the to the same point without looking at the film because he can't look. Yeah. He has to make right. a note of where it started right. and where it ended, and has to successfully start at that place and then end at that place without ever actually looking at anything except for probably a counter on the on the crank, right? Yeah. Like that's you know yeah. a, you know probably a, a a frame counter and that's it. But like yeah. I that I, that's seems so so difficult yeah just so it's just incredibly difficult and like if they had if they had succeeded half as well as they have it still would have been impression like it's such an ambitious thing to do at the time right that that they didn't need to do it this well and like to do it for an hour Uh, of film basically (laughs) is just i don't know I understand why you do because it looks amazing. Yeah. Flip side, could you not just paint the guy with like slightly um, like um, fluorescent paint or something? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, could you? It looks amazing. Well, like, it's totally understandable why you do this. Like, you can see through him. Like, he's fuck. He's a fucking ghost. Yeah. But another like, my another. Another aspect of it, though, is that Langerloff didn't want to uh, give them the rights to this book because she didn't think that uh, they'd be able to pull off the supernatural elements on film. Understandable, right? Like, why would you assume that they could do this seemingly impossible thing, right? Like, why would you assume this was possible? Because you've yeah, never really seen evidence of that, probably. Film is not, you know, she's probably seen a film at that point, maybe, probably. But, like, the idea that you would assume that, like, that's going to translate to being able to show a ghost on screen is is a pretty yeah pretty ambitious idea, right? And then these guys are like, no, trust us, we could do it. And it's like, yeah, I'm not convinced that you knew okay. you definitely could when you said that. Right. Yeah. 
Oh, here here it is in the uh, in the production section of the Wikipedia of uh, of the Phantom Carriage. It points it out. Uh, Lagerlof had an agreement with AB Svenska uh, Biografitern, the uh, the film production company mm-hmm. here. Uh, she had a contract with them from 1917 that they would adapt one of her novels every year. That's why she's the only source material for any of their movies. Right. Yeah. Well, and I mean, like, if you look at her works, I mean, there are plenty. Nonetheless, they probably right. didn't have to choose this one. Uh, right, right. You know what I mean? Like, there were plenty of other ones, many of which seem to be short story collections. So you could really, like, you really had a lot of, like, you, you still chose the hardest one, probably. Yeah. Uh, Sostrom then wrote the script in a week, uh, had a meeting with Largoloff, uh, and performed it all for her. Oh, my God. <laughs> then she signed off on it. <laughs> oh, my God. So. Oh, God. That's amazing. Oh, that's man. So good. But, but, yeah, the, the colorization, the, the, the tinting of the film to, uh, facilitate the uh the flashbacks to mm-hmm. to differentiate the flashbacks is a great idea too i i think that might be innovative for this film i don't i don't know that um but the use of separate uh you know separate tinting obviously i think we we've experienced that in silent film before um yeah, although I mean that's uh, the thing, the no. thing about that's interesting about that too is that I, as far as I know that's there's no way to like how do I put this? It's not like color photography where like well now the film just does this. You know yeah. you know what I mean? Like that's I I think there's a reason why people saw cuts without that in it, right? Like that might right. have been the desired style, but it doesn't mean obviously that doesn't mean that every print that went out of the went out of the office or whatever had that coloration in it right so that's its whole a whole sort of another thing right right yeah yeah it's just on the techno technological side of this it's just so so breathtaking um with you know as we mentioned in the introduction the scene in the ocean is a little silly. It, it is the um, only. It is but, probably the only one that really takes you out of the uh, out of the thing. Yeah, all the rest feel authentic enough that you're like, yeah, okay, this is fine. That's the only one where you're like, this is this is a bit janky right here. Uh, probably should have not shot that scene. But I guess if you're gonna go for it, fucking go for it, right? Like, yeah, why not? People are still probably going to be pretty impressed at the time anyway. I I think it adds a sense of. Uh, realism to George's storytelling in that uh, if I if if I were telling a bunch of drunk friends this story about how uh, a single carriageman has to pick up the souls of every dead every person who dies in a year you would start adding more uh, and more ridiculous one of situations those... to make things like to make it feel more like uh, yeah well one of the, one of those drunk guys is definitely going to say well what about people who die in the ocean Right, yeah. How does he do that? Right. It, and instead of the answer being, well, he has a boat, it's... it's the carriage no, just, just drives the, the carriage on the, the bottom, of the, bottom of the ocean. Yeah, it's yeah. like... It, it makes yeah. sense. Like, it's the sort of thing you would do in drunken storytelling, right? Like, it's it's just it's just fascinating because it's like, well, 
it, nonetheless, it is visually somewhat still still quite impressive. It's just like it it's not as the rest of the effects are good enough that it, it feels almost out of place in the fact that it's not quite as successfully accomplished as the rest of them, right? Right, um, right, right, right. But like it is still quite good. Um, yeah, I don't know. It, it's the, the from a technical perspective, the movie is is it's understandable why it affected Bergman so much. Uh, right. It's understandable why it affected Charlie Chaplin so much. It's a fucking technical yeah. marvel, right? It's like, holy shit, how did you do this? And bear in mind that like right. Charlie Chaplin, famous becomes famous for technical film, you and know, camera, camera special, special effects, effects yeah. right? Like famous for it and it's still it's a marvel to behold right i mean mind you this is the 20s right. he gets more famous for that i think a little bit later but like i i don't know i'm not an expert on charlie chaplin so don't quote me on that i don't know where this fits into the timeline of his his filmmaking but it's an impressive feat right like it is just fundamentally impressive to everybody who watches it has even a passing interest in film it's probably it's also impressive to anybody who doesn't it's just that, like it's going to affect anybody who does who's interested in film, right? Because it's so kind of unprecedented. And like, I think for, if we're being honest, remains unprecedented for a pretty long time. Cause we're in like who framed Roger (laughs) rabbit fucking territory here. You know what I'm talking about? We're talking like, we are going to have to do crazy ass shit to make this work in a way that like film productions, when you kind of look at things, right? Like, you're talking about a lot of work, right? That's going to have to like all be completed successfully for the film to work, right? And when anybody right. dares to make that kind of go do that kind of undertaking, they're essentially saying like we're willing to do this amount of work to make this thing. Um, it, that's just I don't know how to describe. It. I, I'm like losing the thread of what I'm trying to say, but my my point just being that like. It's such an impressive, uh, impressive amount of work to even undertake that, like, a lot of people right. just aren't going to undertake it, right? I, I brought up Who Framed Roger Rabbit because it famously required just a fucking intense amount of like planning and thought process yeah. to produce those effects, right? To produce that that cartoon blended style, and this is similar in the sense that like everything has to be planned meticulously. There can be no right. We'll figure it out later. There's no, like, we have to, like, because we're going to guess or it'll be fine. No, because it won't be fine. If you do not plan it perfectly, it will not be fine. Right. Because you are, in, in sim- similarly to uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, uh, particularly in what is the most technologically amazing scene where George and David come to visit Sister Edith on her, on her deathbed. Uh, Edith. Edith is interacting with them as if she. Is can the, see them, yeah, and right? they are very and specifically not there. They are not there. Right. Um. They right. cannot be there. There's, there's no ability for that to work. Otherwise, they can't even do the fucking act to a tennis ball thing. She just has to act to right an empty room. Yeah. And she and she nails it. And you know that is. And then that is they have to, to interact with an entirely black version of that room. Without right. her in it. Yeah. Right. It's yeah. a lot. Yeah. And it really works so well. Um, you know, and that is something that you can legitimately dog on a lot of modern blockbusters for. Well, because the they don't CG have to era. do any of that, right? Like, I mean, is that 
at this point, we're to the point where they don't even have to figure out the costumes before they shoot the film. Right. Which is they are acting to nothing, right? But they're not—they're not selling that they're acting to the something so often, right? Yeah, it's—it's—it's it's, um, it's a very hard thing to do, and it—and it's oftentimes quite unsuccessful, right? Like you don't—it's not really yeah. very believable. I think it's, it's actually pushed. My my like hot take on it is that it's pushed acting back more towards a silent era level of like weird emote because yeah, people aren't actually good at acting to tennis balls. They're just not and they tend to right. overact and as a result i feel like but i think i think it's not even necessarily an acting issue i think they could i think that they would be able to but that the powers that be are not interested in giving them the opportunity to well, do better because well, and i think uh, part of that and i i agree with you but i think part of that is because it's not already pre-meticulously planned right you're acting right. to a tennis ball, and you don't know what that world's going to look like when it gets done, right? And neither neither do they. Whereas, I guarantee you, I'm not, not going to be able to pronounce his name, right? Slojan, how do you pronounce his name? I've already forgotten. Slostrom does know what that world's going it's to look like. It's more of an SH sound. Yeah, Slostrom or something. Yes. Yeah, I, I, yeah, he does know what this is going to look like, right? They have to. It's the only way to pull it off, and they can and he can articulate that to you as an actor, right, and put you into that world in a way that oh well we don't even actually know what your clothes are going to look like yet, so fucking just go for it. Won't do that, right? I don't know. It's it's I it, yeah. It, it's just a very different idea of like what it means to make. Uh, it's different even than what's going on at the time, and it's different and but it's like. So substantially far removed from what we understand as filmmaking now in a lot of ways, I feel like. Yeah. Um, and I mean, digital alone lets you just is, do things in such a different way, right? Like, you just can see it. I mean, like, we watched, what was the movie we watched a while back that had the whole feature on, like, shooting with the red? And, like, talking about how, oh, like, we uh, could just see everything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the most recent one was uh, Todd Solon's... Uh, uh, like during wartime. Right. Yeah. And the idea that you um, don't have to like necessarily, you can like preview it instantly and then like make decisions based on what the preview looks like. And, and it's, you know. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a whole different animal as that bonus feature uh, on life during wartime gets into, you know, it's just, it's comparable, but it's not, it's not film. Right. It's doing a different thing. Yeah, and, 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 and it's not to, to say that this is necessarily a better thing. way of doing things per se. It's just that, like, yeah. it's just really, it's a marvel to think about, like, how how intense the process of making this must have been. We touched on Bergman's obsession with this movie. Uh, two of the bonus features are dedicated to the Bergman connection. One is called the Bergman, Bergman himself connection. being no, interviewed. I forget what it's called. Yeah, and the other is called the Bergman okay, connection. It's a, photo, it's a film essay by Peter Cowie. Cowie, we've heard from before. He's it has a lot of, of interesting the, uh, things to say. Criterion about. Collections, yeah. yeah, yeah, he's an interesting guy. Uh, but he's the Criterion Collections go to uh, Bergman. Uh, dude. Bergman, uh, I think, I think it was Bergman Island had like the one hour yeah. biographical thing on on Bergman that was narrated by Cowie as well. Um, but yeah, so. 
one one thing I love is that one one thing that sells this movie so much is Sostrom's uh, approach to acting in silent movies because he recognizes that it needs to be different from stage acting. Uh, that the lack of voice means that you have to be more expressive, but he doesn't go German expressionist <laughs> right. more expressive. Yeah. You know, there's no. I mean, it's 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 on a relative scale somewhat naturalistic. Yeah, it's not like as intense as it could be. Right. Bergman talks about when he first saw the movie, it completely overwhelmed him. Uh, not because he understood anything that was like any <laughs> right. of the plot. But just because of the cinematic power of what was happening. Sostrom, as I said, was in two Bergman films eventually. They met in the 40s when Bergman was first starting out. Sostrom ends up acting in uh, Bergman's film To Joy, which we have not seen. And Wild Strawberries, which we saw years and years ago. A a funny thing Bergman says in this bonus feature is that in To Joy, he says, I didn't didn't rein him in at all. That he let let Sostrom do his normal acting thing. Uh, and for that reason, Bergman does not like to watch Two Joy. Right. Um, uh, whereas in the Phantom, or uh, whereas in Wild Strawberries, he uh, was more explicit with what he wanted from Sodstrom. To so- Sodstrom's chagrin at times, it seems. Right. Uh, but Sodstrom was still a professional who did what he was asked and did it phenomenally. I mean, yeah, Wild Strawberries is he's great quickly, in that movie. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so all very funny. Uh, Bergman says, uh, or Cowie says that by the time Bergman died, he'd watched The Phantom Carriage at least a hundred times. Yeah, I mean, which uh, is amazing when you consider the fact that, like, that's all going to be, I guess, film reel, right? He's going to just keep watching right. film cuts of it. It's Yeah. I wonder if Bergman had access to the non-American version. <laughs> Of the film, yeah, before 1975, that that's a whole other sort of thing to think about, right? Because we we kind of you know we haven't touched on this a lot, but sort of the restoration process involved the Swedish Institute of Film, I think it's what it's called, trying yeah. to hunt down like good copies of this, right? Which right. didn't right. seem to be a lot of extant good copies. Yeah, so you know, at the on the one hand, maybe within Sweden there were just degraded copies. That were still chronologically correct, but you could, you know, but weren't um, in good shape. Yeah, like, or even might have been on the wrong, might have not been on the, um, might have also just not been on the right, um, what you call it, on the right uh, film stock. You know what I mean? Like, I bet there might have been home yeah. viewing copies that are not on thirty-five millimeter floating around as well. That might have just been not desirable for them. And they and what they really are looking for is negatives if they can get them right. Like they would rather have right. the negatives than than the actual film stock if they can find it. The Bergman connections are plentiful, though. Uh, one of Bergman's last uh, projects was a teleplay uh, that was the making of this movie, essentially. Oh, interesting. Um, That's the play. The, the play had existed prior, right. uh, but Bergman uh, made it. It's called, uh, I believe it's called The Image Makers, if I remember correctly. Oh, right. Uh, yeah, yeah. I remember seeing that on the on the list. That's that's fascinating because that's that would be that would be interesting to watch. Like that would be legitimately, I think, very fascinating to like 
something digging into yeah. the making of a movie this sort of sophisticated and complicated um, at this stage. Like, you know, because it's like a classic, like, well, we're going to be doing a bunch of shit that nobody's ever done before. So, like, like right. that's always a fascinating yeah. sort of story uh, like kind of concept. Yeah. And then something Callie gets to that's a, a deeper uh, connection is that Julius Johnson, the filmographer, uh, Julius Johnson, the cinematographer here, uh, ended up teaching cinematography and taught uh, at least two cinematographers who would go on to work with Bergman, including uh, Sven Nyquist. So uh, the pedigree of this movie lives on in Bergman's work through that as well. Right, so, and, yeah, and I'm sure just... that like if we went back and reviewed a little bit more carefully, we could probably see how that... I mean, you can kind of like... If nothing else, sort of pacing and stuff seems to be very in line with Birdman and stuff in the sense that this movie does not move so very quickly. Um, I mean, there's also like the, the presence of a per- personified death that like Bergman just like uses. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, slightly different, although not entirely. Like this death is not quite necessarily always as ominous as the Bergman sort of versions of that. That being said, when his face has not been revealed to be George and he's just a specter moving through the world, it's pretty ominous. It's not it's not nothing, right? right, right? right. You know? The Cow ASA breaks gets gets into more things. Um but, you know, thematically, this is obviously stuff that Bergman's dealing with throughout his career too. Yeah, I mean Bergman's right? I with so. our you know, Bergman's definitely dealing with the sort of the the philosophical and theological things a lot more deeply than this movie is but uh yeah still sort of the same basic kind of concepts i mean this as we talked about this movie's not really actually interested in philosophy or theology is at at its core right It's, it's interested in condemning drunkenness i suppose we would be remiss if we didn't point out that this is a highly influential film uh including the shining borrowing direct visuals from this movie right and some yeah uh but also you know even even earlier um this is a movie whose visuals inspire uh dryer's vampire that we watched a few years ago who's working concurrently right right well and, that, and it's interesting to think about right because it we're, we talked about this a little bit last last week like the last, our yeah. last regular recording, we talked about the idea of like how oftentimes you're getting into the influences of the influences rather than like a direct, you know, a direct connection, right? And this is going to be one of those yeah. cases, right? Because presumably for about 50 years, there was no good copy of this movie that any person making the, a movie could have seen. Right. You can see a bad copy, but you couldn't see a good copy. Like where everything's in the right order and like it's tinted correctly and also has English subtitles or whatever, right? And so you're kind of getting into this idea that like you've got some who see it at the time, right? You've got your Bergman, you've got Dreyer might have seen it like a, a good copy at the time, that you know, right? And then everybody else is 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 a derivative of a person who saw this for real, right? Like, right? Kubrick didn't see this. 
that's well Kubrick could have seen this the shining didn't come out till 1980 so he could have seen I guess he might have saw it at the, the very uh, yeah the I, I, I was kind of thinking of it as a yeah. sort of foundational thing but I guess he might have saw a copy of it right 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 somewhat um contemporaneously with the making of the shining I guess that's true um yeah I'm just thinking in general that like a lot of people made films that were influenced by this but through an indirect process right like a lot of people yeah because most of them were not necessarily alive and watching films in like 1921 or whatever 1925 so, you know i mean Bergman didn't see it in 19 when it came out in 1921 he saw it in like probably like 1930 or like 1928 or something like that yeah he, he says, says he, he was, was young, young enough that he to... couldn't understand the plot fully but it was still impactful right so we're probably talking like fairly young mid 20s you know? to the 30s yeah. yeah so like that's so it influences him and then he goes on to influence a whole fuck ton of directors right like right and 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 he's not the only one who's influenced it by it right like i mean it's we've we've talked about chaplin seeing it and saying it's the best film he's ever seen he ever saw like you've got Sen Nyquist who doesn't you know who makes move like you know films movies right like and uh, you know it's it's it is interesting to think about how that process works I, I know it's it's kind of trite but it's still a thing that like i especially since we talked about it last you know two weeks ago i guess for us is a thing that like i can't yeah. quite let go of is this idea of like this sort of like lineage that extends out from these things without the people having ever seen the source the the, the true source material uh, yeah is, is a it's just an interesting thing to me uh, well, I like to think about. It's maybe interesting with The Shining because obviously there's the direct visual reference of the axe scene, right? Absolutely, right? like which is just uh, like straightforward, like but, it's just the scene, right? Yeah. But The Shining is also about the dangers of drink to a certain extent. Um, well, I mean, and, the, the, this movie has true... other things in common with it. Like it's not just right that one yeah. scene, perhaps. Perhaps more true to the original novel, in The Shining, Jack is kind of a personification of evil once once the bad things start happening. Right. Right. So yeah, I don't know. It 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 owes some things. Well, I certainly. mean, and but, you know, it, it you know, like you know, it it is in the sense that like, yeah, this idea of like in, in this movie it's the alcohol, but like this idea of like some sort of dark force that just sort of overtakes someone and like makes them yeah the way they like engage with the people around them that they should be caring for and stuff like that um right 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 so yeah uh would this movie be better if david doesn't get redeemed yes it would be (laughs) okay like if david just froze to death out in the snow by himself yeah the movie would be better Except that if David doesn't get redeemed, then his wife and children, his his wife murders his kids. Okay, and so okay, so let's deal with, with that. No one to stop her. Okay, so like actually, we I wanted to talk about this, there and are, I nearly forgot. You're you're right because yeah, because when we're watching, I it, I, yeah, well, you know yeah. what we're going to talk about because we already did this episode. The fucking file, like That's a, fair. The computer yes. crashed. Um, yeah. so like when we're watching David in the last scene with with death, he is. He finds yeah. out his wife is going to commit suicide with, and, and kill his cho- the children as well by poisoning. And yeah. he begins to, like, 
lament, right? He begins to try to like try to kind of essentially bargain with death, bargain with God. He 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 begins to and it like and and he is his only sort of final resort is to pray, right? He begins to pray like aggressively pray, right? We as the audience right. don't know what's going to happen. Like we we know that like the movie's not going to let them die, like presumably. But we don't right. actually know how his prayer is going to affect the world, right? I assumed when I was watching it that he was still going to be need to be death's carriage driver. And that like right. there would be a like miraculous moment where like his prayers are answered, but he has not saved the fate that he has earned himself. And that like right. they as innocents would be saved via in some way by his prayer. Like maybe another Salvation Army person would knock on the door and discover what's going on right. and like talk her out of it or something like that. I assume that's what was going to happen because I felt that made the most sense in the plot. That like David hasn't redeemed himself. David is has still been a bad person for a long time and has is already dead. There's no reason to believe he's going to come back to life because that's silly. Right. Right. Um, it's not and this is where we depart significantly from from our Dickens lineage here in the sense that like Scrooge is not dead. We as the audience right. do not believe Scrooge is dead. We are not we we understand that, that this is a redemption story basically from the beginning, right? That like that Scrooge will, is I mean, we're literally told by it, right? Like you know, like we're told by the right. story, hey, some ghosts are gonna come. You better fucking listen to them, lest you become like me. To right? be like, <clears throat> yeah, yeah, right. To be fair, to be fair, some ghosts are coming, going to come. You better listen to them. Is uh, Marley's redemption arc, right? Right. Mar- yeah, yeah, yeah. Marley yeah. gets to show up to warn. Right, his right, friend. right. Yes, that right. is true. That is true. But like, but it's also it's made clear to us what's going to happen. Is my point. Is is yeah. we at no point do we believe Scrooge is dead and is beyond hope. And one of the arguments of the move of the of the story is nobody's beyond hope in right. general. Um, including the worst person you'll ever meet in your entire life, right? Like it would just essentially right. Scrooge. Um, and so this like this movie doesn't tell us that, right? This movie says, no, this fucker's dead. Dunn been hit on the head by a bottle. This guy's toast. We literally leave his watch right. his spirit leave his body. Um and so we don't expect that to be the answer, right? And so I would argue the movie already sets up a world where he doesn't have to be brought back to life. The thing yeah. I just described, the thing I thought was going to happen, could happen, and he still has to serve his duty, right? It doesn't tell us that they go to hell after that. This is just right. the price they pay for their for their sins, right? Um, now, how you... How every other soul on earth, like there's only one bad person at a time, and that motherfucker always dies what, on midnight, on New Year's Eve. Well, it's right. only the the absolute worst, right? Everybody. So, so this is a very specific kind of scale that has one single outlier well, at the bottom who's the worst, and everybody else is good enough to just go straight to heaven. It's fine. It's not even that scale. It's not even that scale. So, so there's there are a couple points to the cosmology. One. It's it it's just whoever is the bad person who coincidentally dies close. I don't to think midnight. that's true. 
Uh, I don't think that's true. I think the movie's trying to say that the worst person always dies on midnight of New Year's Eve. That maybe I think that's maybe. the argument it's uh, making but, uh, because but that's the only thing, way it would be fair. A thing that is stated in the movie is that it's not their job to pick up Edith. Right, that's true. That's true. It's an argument their job is only to pick up yeah. similar souls. The right? bad, yeah, the bad people. Edith is is yeah. is not so, there to be re- to be harvested. Yeah. So the uh, the other side gets to come. <laughs> Another group gets to come pick her up, uh, and she gets taken to just a different, slightly nicer carriage. Uh, Yeah, maybe. So yeah, this one Um, has four wheels. So it does. That's it. Yeah, presumably this carriage is taking them to some sort of purgatory or eternal punishment that is uncommented on in the in the. Well, the problem we run into with that, which right, the movie doesn't get into. This movie is also just not interested in theology, which is fascinating, right? Um, Right, (laughs) which is a fascinating thing for a movie about this topic. Stories, stories like this don't need to be. I understand that. I understand that. Certainly. Certainly. It's just fascinating that it's not interested in either side of that of that yeah. coin, right? Like it's not interested in society. The Christmas or Carol is not. No, absolutely not. Yeah, the Chris, right? But Christmas Carol is interested in society. Uh, you know, uh, uh, what's it? Uh, uh, it's a Wonderful Life is uh, interested in the society, but not. Well, that's what, uh, that's what I'm saying the is that they, they are right? and and everything on Hallmark Channel is <laughs> like, but right, like right, my right. my point is is that. That's what ma- part of what makes it feel so vapid is it's in- interested in neither of those two things, right, right? Which kind of leaves you with almost nothing. It leaves you feeling like you, it's it's devoid of any sort of con of like really like true content, right? Is it doesn't want to engage with anything it could be talking about? Because it be it could be talking about that stuff to a certain extent. It could be actually in- interested in sort of Christian theology. Uh, even yeah. if it is bad uh, Salvation Army theology. Um, but yeah, no, it, it, it's not. And I, I'm just saying, like, I like my version of the movie better. I'm going to armchair quarterback this, and, and I say... Oh, certainly. My version where he is fucking dead. And there's no coming back for that. You should have gotten... You should have redeemed yourself while you had the chance, while the time was available to you, is a more interesting story than, oh, yeah, death can just bring you back. Yeah. It's fine. Never never mind the fact All that, right. like, by the way, if he's taking souls to hell, maybe, or maybe purgatory, does then the coachman also have to go there after he gets done being the coachman? Is it just an extra punishment that's tacked would, on on top of the, the like- worst? It would seem like the horrors of having to do that would be their purgatory, but who knows? Right. I mean, I'm just saying. What the cosmology here is meant to be. Yeah. Well, and that's, and that, but, but that's also what I'm kind of getting at too is the fact that like engaging with that, the sort of the dis, the disharmony that exists between folk, like folk religion, folk like myth. And Christianity is yeah. also a fascinating thing to engage with. Some other director may have done that at times. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, like, I'm just saying it's not interested in that either. It's just like, oh, boy, you just, like, you just left all the cards on the table. Didn't even bother to pick any of them up. Just going to pick up this one cut labeled alcohol is evil. And that's, we're just going to run with that one. And that's it. That's the yeah. only card in the deck. Yeah. 
Yeah. Listen, not everything can be social commentary, apparently. Uh, well, I think social commentary, at least not not on purpose, this right? Is this is definitely social commentary. Yeah. It's just, it's just not on purpose in the way they think it is. Um, it's also social commentary I mean, is, in the way is, they think it is, but it's also not social commentary. It, it also is not what it, they think it is as well, right? A com- a com- yeah. an, is an, uh, an absolute determined desire to to claim no societal structures in place. Is a very specific social claim, right? Obviously, with Dickens, it's purposeful, but with "It's a Wonderful Life," is the the fact that this is a movie about how uh, good men attempting to function within capitalism just leads to burnout, uh, suicidal burnout. In fact, is that is that a purposeful point of? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a I wonderful think life. It or just... has to be a little bit, right? You couldn't have made that movie without. I. It's almost too. Co- it's almost unbelievable that it would be all just on accident. I guess we yeah. do run into the problem of like, if you point your camera at capitalism, and talk about something bad, your audience might accidentally understand that capitalism is bad. <laughs> uh, you know what <laughs> right, I mean? Right, like, right. but like, I mean, obviously Dickens, as you said, very much on purpose, right? That the Christmas Carol exists literally because Dickens wanted to make a story about how these structures are fucking like, because it very much engages right. with the idea that Scrooge is not an unusually evil man that he is. Right. The society has made him this way. And he's like, certainly not a personification. Right. Of he evil. is not a personification so. of evil. He is the, the result of a society that makes these men on purpose and, and lauds what they do. And, and then also says, Hey, you shouldn't be that person. Right. But then also again, you know, you're you know you're left with a sort of question of like, well, fixing one person will not fix the system, and that's a thing that uh, Dickens is very well aware of in that movie, in that uh, book as well. So, yeah, I don't know. It's just interesting to just not engage with any of that. I it, it boggles the mind, frankly. But you do it on purpose, right? You yeah. purposely ignore all that, and like temperance movements right. around the world purposely ignored all that. The Victorians, the you know who. preceded this also purposely ignored that pretty much with a few notable exceptions right like purposely decided that social ills were were individualistic problems rather than social problems you know Uh, 100% yeah Uh, well on on that note let's Uh, pull this to a close Uh, we've been talking about The Phantom Carriage from 1921 just a phenomenally visually stunning movie uh, with with a kind of dumb plot yeah. <laughs> by by Victor Schoestrom. uh yeah, so great. I mean, uh, it's next it week really we'll a, about... a, a sight to behold. It really is. I like we we complain about the plot a lot because it, the plot yes. is so stupid, but like the movie is truly a mar a marvel. Next week we'll be talking about another movie with some guy suffering from tuberculosis, uh, Le Beau Serge. More. Uh, by Claude Chabrol from 1958. <laughs> yeah, it's a we're in Criterion's tuberculosis in the, arc. I don't. We've talked yep. about Criterion maybe or maybe not accidentally having themes uh, in yep. this, in the spine like listings. A tuberculosis arc was one I could not. Have, it was not on any of my bingo cards. It's like it's it's one of those uh, randomization AIs where it only takes into consideration the last song that played. So, uh, Jean Vigo, 
so we get to the phantom carriage because it's influential uh and deals with tuberculosis that Jean Vigo uh uh suffered from. Uh then the Beau Serge uh, has a character suffering from tuberculosis, so we'll do the tuberculosis thing again. But then the next film we watch is just another Claude Chabrol <laughs> film, so uh, so we we switch the connection. Right. But I don't know. If, I don't know. Maybe maybe Chabrol made two movies about guys with tuberculosis. We'll have to wait to find out. <laughs> he also is on a tuberculosis kick. It's just it's all maybe, we talk about. Maybe everybody. It's just the rest of the Criterion Collection. It's just all tuberculosis <laughs> from here on out. The next seven hundred spine numbers <laughs> are well, all Well, they'll slowly evolve. Eventually, as you mentioned, the weird, the weird randomization algorithm will eventually evolve to just like yeah. pulmonary conditions in general. Yeah, yeah, probably. Uh, anyway, thank you so much for listening to Lost in Criterion. I'm as always the Adam Glass. With me as always, Sean Patrick Ojari Dorgan, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye. listening to Lost in Criterion with co-hosts The Adam Glass and John Patrick Oitari Dorgan. With the collapse of Twitter, who knows what social media we might end up at. How about Blue Sky? That sounds great. Check out the official podcast account at lostincriterion.bsky.social. Jonathan Hape does our music, and you can check out more of his work at jonathan-hape.com or on any music streaming service. And you probably should. He's pretty good. A big thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon. You can join their ranks at patreon.com slash lostincriterion. And hey, thank you for listening.